Welcome back to the Society Case Files podcast. My name is Robert Hazelton, and I'll be your host. Today we're going to discuss the creation of setting, whether it be for novels, TV, movies, whatever you're going to work on. We're also going to discuss the creation of story for role-playing games, because it's a very different medium to write for. And finally, we're going to talk about some of my anticipated entertainment coming in the near future. I got a lot to talk about, so let's dive right in. Today I wanted to talk about some story ideas when we create for different mediums outside of novels and short stories. Specifically, I wanted to talk about tabletop role-playing games, especially since it's changed so much in the years since I first started when I was a little kid. Basically, it's a totally different animal as a game master creating a story for your players to, to jump into. Oftentimes, we have this really great idea that we want to share with our friends, but we really have to be careful because this isn't the platform that we just stand up and sort of act like we're around the campfire and convey the information to those who are sitting with us. In this case, it's much more of a collaborative situation. And if you don't go into it that way, then your players will feel railroaded and they're going to not have as much fun because they won't feel like they have the same impact in the story as they do in other games they play with their friends. So you really have to be careful about that part. And you have to remember your audience. When people come to you to play a role-playing game, especially seasoned uh, players, you're basically getting the kinds of guys and gals who criticize the actions of characters in movies. They're the type of people who look at a horror movie hero and they're like, why are you not going out the front door? Why are you exploring that right now? What is the point? You're insane. And because of that, they bring that to the table. You know, a zombie apocalypse game is a great example. You decide you want to run a, a game like that, and you have to realize that your players probably have a zombie survival plan that they fantasize about when they're on their commute or talk about to their friends online or any of the other things. Not to mention the fact that they've got countless movies and shows to draw upon as cautionary tales, such as The Walking Dead or the numerous George Romero movies. So you really have to be careful how you approach it, because if you're hoping that all of your players are going to respond as the characters in the movies or books, you're going to be sorely disappointed. These guys are going to do crazy stuff to barricade themselves into impregnable locations. They're going to have wild ideas about how to get supplies. And oftentimes when you bring a zombie apocalypse game to the table, the first thing folks think is that they're going to basically be playing a sandbox role-playing game where they have to find a way to survive. Uh, Thinking about that and putting that into perspective means that when you come at it, you need to leverage the expectations early. This goes for any game that you run. You need to let the players know what you're selling so that they know how to respond appropriately. And if you're too vague, then you have to be ready to create the game that they buy. So for a great example is you're going to play Dungeons & Dragons. You sit down with your buddies and you say, we're going to do some D&D, let's make some characters. Now, if you don't offer any guidance, if you're not like, and we need to have a diverse party that has at least these classes, they might end up with something that is very different than than you might think. Now, if you totally don't care and you let them run uh, riot with with their design, you might end up with two fighters, a ranger, a rogue, and a cleric. Now, right there, what that tells me is that my party wants to do a lot of combat. 
They want to experience everything that the combat system has to offer. So as a GM, I need to be very familiar with the aspects of the game to, to keep it fun and moving continually. In a game like Vampire the Masquerade, it becomes a little bit more open-ended, and you really have to be careful because I was part of a game where two of the players were combat monsters, and I made a social character who couldn't fight his way out of a paper bag, and I ended up pretty much on the short end of every encounter because I had to just hide. So half the game for me was hiding. And as a GM, it would have been good for my uh, character to be altered or say, you know what, your character is more of an NPC at this point. These guys are going to be roaming around throwing cars at people and you're going to be watching most of the time. It's not going to be that much fun. So as a GM, you do have a lot of responsibilities besides designing the game and besides throwing out encounters at your players. So remember that that is very important. And when you go at it, always have that plan in mind that you're going to have to be flexible. Now, it's really good to allow your villains to have agendas, to give them something that is actually of meaning and value so that they're not just complete cardboard cutouts. It's going to be a lot more memorable for players when they go up against villains, arc villains specifically, to um, if, if those characters have some sort of... Um, draw or or tie to the world that makes them interesting whether it's sympathetic or they're just really cool uh, you really need to do it design your villain make that villain like a, a like a pc character design their character sheet come up with their history treat it the same way you would expect your players to treat their characters so that when they encounter them and they start to unravel the pathos of that person it will feel like a novel in a lot of ways or a movie or the greatest tv shows let's talk about the sort of rocks that I would create to uh, represent an entire arc. So the first one happens prior to when the players become involved. And this is where the villain is basically moving into position to do something nefarious or something that is contrary to what society would accept. Uh, It's the important elements that that character is setting into motion, which will bring the players into the story. Uh, A good example would be the villain has gone up to the mountaintop and he's opened the portal for the demons to come through and the arc demon has stepped through and now they're working in tandem to basically destroy the world. So that's already happened. Uh, maybe in, in addendum to that, they have kidnapped someone important and they're going to basically sacrifice them and that's going to bring the players into the mix. So the second big rock is when the players become involved and rather they launch the investigation or are somehow drawn into the story. Now that could be that they were in the middle of town when the person got kidnapped and they attempted to save them and failed. Or you can even, because it's a role-playing game and stuff happens that you don't expect, they might even succeed and now they've got the person with them and it becomes one of those protection stories where they've got to get this person out of town and keep them away from the bad guys all while finding out what's going on. But regardless of how you do it, this is where the players start in the story. Now, some horrible thing has already happened. The next horrible thing they became involved in, they either stopped it or they didn't. And now we're moving on to the third thing. This is sort of a climactic situation. It's where the players might feel outmatched or even incapable of stopping their opponent. 
it could be perceived or it could be real. Maybe they're facing a freaking dragon and they aren't powerful enough and they're going to have to go off and do some things in order to aspire to face that foe. But regardless of what it is, this is sort of a um, um, tipping point for the characters. They might have felt like they had things under control before, but at this point it should feel like things are slipping out of control. The next one is when the villain and the characters meet for a sort of finale, something that it's going to end with the world being saved or doom falling over everybody and everywhere. And between those two things, obviously a lot has had to happen. A lot of little adventures, things that were providing them with clues and information to lead them to this point. But this is the big one. This is where the characters are going to essentially face down their foe and and either win or, or lose. And the last one, the fifth one, represents a sort of epilogue, and it's where we either wrap up what's been going on and we move on to the next story or we completely wrap the game up because it was a one-shot or whatever the case may be. This is where we sort of take a deep breath. Now, if it's a long-term campaign and that villain in the fourth rock is not actually defeated, maybe he's just driven off, then the epilogue is the characters getting ready to launch the next part of their investigation. A great example of how all of this works is done in the Masks of Nier Lathotep uh, module. And if you don't want to play through it, there's actually a Dark Adventure Radio Theater version of it, and they break it up by location. And each of those locations, as you listen through, follow what I just described. The characters essentially become involved. They do some stuff. They reach a climax. They have an epilogue where they launch into the next part of the investigation. So uh, if you think about that, then... It helps you to design the story in a somewhat flexible way because in between each of the rocks is where the characters are doing all of the action. So they're really going to experience a lot of that stuff. And they're going to be throwing you for loops because they're going to do a whole bunch of great uh, new things that you didn't think about and um, their creativity will carry you through. Here's a great example of how not to do a tabletop role-playing game. Uh, Mass Effect. The way that Mass Effect worked was that it provides you with all sorts of feelings like you're impacting the world, that you've changed things. But in the end, after all of that, the decisions in the third game pretty much come down to nothing special. In fact, it didn't matter what you did in those first two games. These three options were all that you were going to face, and they all kind of sucked. So not only do you have people who have played countless hours of the entertainment, but at the very end, it is beyond unsatisfying. In fact, it's it, it would make them angry. And if you put that into perspective with the tabletop RPG, let's say that you came up with your story and it was pretty set in stone, but you learned to be flexible, flexible and you allowed the players to do what they needed to do. When they go through and they get to the end, if you suddenly enforce some ending that might even feel arbitrary, you're going to lose those players and you're going to turn what could have been a great experience into something really negative. As another example, I ran a Warhammer fantasy game for a whole lot of players. And the idea was they were basically a mercenary band and they kind of roamed around the country fighting chaos. The climax of the campaign, the uh, characters were going to be fighting this dragon in town. And I anticipated they would actually lose some people. My, my thought process was, if people die in this, they're, they're actually going to die. But I figured that the fight was going to be dramatic enough that they would, they would feel like their end was heroic. It wasn't going to be lame. They weren't going to just get killed by some goblin. They were actually going to have a pretty 
knockdown drag out fight with this dragon and a bunch of the minions. So when one of the players cast a spell right off the bat, pretty much in the first couple rounds, he decides he's going to hit this thing, the dragon, with a uh, with a magic spell. And his damage die exploded. And it was utterly ridiculous. Uh, the number of times he kept rolling a six was getting absurd to the point where it almost felt, had he not sucked so bad with his rolls prior to that, I would have thought the die was loaded. After like the fourth time, the players around the table were screaming like they were in a craps game, uh, like they had serious money on the table, and they were just freaking out. He hit it with so much damage that the big boss died basically in one attack. I mean, it was a little anticlimactic in one way, but at the same time, the way that the players felt about it, they were just so overjoyed. It became this story that literally everyone at the table told for at least two years. And the guy who did it, he continues to tell that story. Still had to mop up some of the minions, but, I mean, ultimately the fight was over. And, you know, they didn't care that it didn't have this dramatic, drawn-out fight scene. I had anticipated that fight was going to take a good couple hours, maybe even four hours to finish, and it didn't. But the players didn't care. They felt like they were badasses. And even the wizard, you know, he stepped up and he's like, well, that's how it's done. And they all had a great time. And that's really what it ultimately comes down to is you got to make sure everyone's having fun. Everybody feels like they're contributing and everyone has designed uh, something for the story. They've, they've put their input in and they've all shared in that experience. So when you're writing these stories, a lot of the stuff that works for novels and movies and TV it doesn't work in a role-playing game. You have to be flexible and you have to, you can't become married to any specific part of your plot because the players will undoubtedly uh, mess it up. And uh, when I say mess it up, I really do mean that they will throw it for a loop because that is the nature of role-playing. That is the nature of a role-playing game. That is, you are sharing the imagined space. And when you share something, you have to give up your preconceived notions. So keep that in mind, and I think you're going to have a lot more fun in your designing of role-playing games in general. One last piece of advice that should come in handy. When you're writing an adventure, you have to remember you're not against the players. Your goal isn't to defeat them. You should never take the approach of me against them. You're building obstacles, absolutely, and you're sprinkling clues throughout those obstacles, and you're helping them achieve the story and contribute. But it's not a board game where you need to win. The moment you start down the path is when you breed unnecessary frustration in your players, and it's really contrary to the whole point. Uh, one of the greatest things about role-playing games is the collaborative nature of what you're doing. So it's really important to keep your players invested by not attacking them. You don't. I mean, there's all those memes out there where, you know, you'll see a a figure hit the board and it's like Tiamat and they say someone made the GM mad and that stuff's funny but you know in all seriousness the idea is to have fun and to challenge the players but you are not against them if that's the way you want to play there are so many awesome board games you could jump into and be that person you could be the the evil GM because there are rules in place to prevent you from essentially victimizing the players but as a GM you do have the power to do that and I've seen it done. I've seen GMs victimize people, and it sucks, and you really need to avoid that. But anyway, I'm sure that there are some experienced and seasoned GMs out there who have a lot more great advice to offer uh, about this subject, and if you think anything I said is crazy or you want to 
uh, discuss it further, please comment on the podcast. I'd love to learn more myself, and I'd love to see what you got to say. The next thing I want to talk about is the creation of setting. I recently had to set up a new world for a book series that I'm working on, and it got me thinking that some of the stuff I do might actually help other people when they sit down to do some world building in general. World building for me, I'm just going to say it, I don't really like it. I'm not a big fan of building worlds. It's not what compels me when, as a writer. For me, writing is about telling the story. I want to tell crazy stories about characters doing things. I don't necessarily want to get hung up on where they're doing them. Forever, Always, and Never, my novel set in the very far future, uh, that did that took some serious world building. However, the reason that I chose to do that particular story was because the world building was mostly done through gaming and other things. So I kind of already had it built. Operation Agamemnon was also a lot of world building, and I did have some fun with it. I really learned a lot, uh, but it was one of the first times I did it. Now that I've created 30 or 40 worlds for different uh, novels and, and ghostwriting projects, I can say that I consider it to be a very painful experience for the most part. It's just a lot of crazy details you have to worry about. And the audience that really appreciates that stuff, they want some detail. They want it to feel lived in. And you really got to think about that. And the way that I go about writing, I'm pretty thorough in some regards. And so I really want to think about the small details, the things that uh, we take for granted in, in some settings. You know, I want to think about what the characters do when they sit down at a restaurant. How is that different than what we do now? That kind of thing is what sells a setting. It's the small things. It's you showing the reader that you spent some time on this and you really do have a grasp. Now, that's not to say that you need a 400-page genre guide before you set out to write your uh, your new novel. Uh, you do need to know enough about the setting to sell it, and you have to leave it open-ended enough to where when you come up with new ideas, you can add them without running into continuity issues. But as far as building a setting, I used to be very detailed. I'd start with the culture, and I would move down, and I would just start building little things. I would get to the nitty-gritty details. I would talk about things, like I said before, the restaurants. Um, I would think about all of the normal stuff that I do now. What's it like to go to school in my setting? What is it like to just go to work and be an average Joe? You want to understand what the average does in your world so that the extraordinary has meaning. Because if your world is one where everybody uses magic to do everything, then it might be extraordinary to follow the guy who can't do magic. Um, I'm thinking of the movie to cast a deadly spell that lovecraft movie that came out on hbo years ago where one guy doesn't use magic and everyone else does and that makes him interesting whereas in an urban fantasy setting it might be that a wizard is the extraordinary character because he lives in detroit and he's the only person in town who can do magic so ultimately you have to think what is the norm create that norm and then go outside the norm when you're writing your story so anyway, to get to the point of what I was creating, I'm building a science fiction setting. And I had some very basic guidelines from the person I was working with. And I really attacked it from the perspective of what is the goal of the story? What is sort of the binding element that builds this 
this whole setting in the first place. And in this case, it was it was um, basically a MacGuffin that uh, everyone is fighting over for the most part. Think uh, Dune, like Spice in Dune. And what I did next was I had to build a military around it so that there was a functioning hierarchy so that my characters would make sense in how they report to one another and how they interact with each other. And I had to create some traditions based on that and some some schools that they could fall back on so that I had these firm backgrounds that made the characters interesting. And then I had to design an alien race that would essentially be the opposition. And I had to make them interesting and not just mindless monsters because these aren't the arachnids from Starship Troopers. These are thought uh, thoughtful beings that actually are doing their attack for uh, a good reason, uh, in their minds at least. So I really attacked the setting from from the background perspective this time. I didn't go at my super high level, hey, what's the culture like? Okay, now what is this like? I just started building things as I thought of them, essentially creating spheres uh, in my template and connecting them together until they were done. And once they were all done, I compiled them together in a document that looked a heck of a lot like my original versions and presented that uh, for uh, approval before starting the next novel. So you can really go at setting any way you want. When you want to build a world, you can be as crazy or as lazy as you want. If you want to go at it and grab a history book of the United States and mirror that style for your setting, you know, more power to you. I personally would advise against that kind of thing because the end result of what you're building is a story. And people these days, especially audiences are, uh, for lack of a better term, they're impatient. There's so much entertainment that we could be indulging, whether it be a book or a movie or TV show, that people really want to get to the point. They want to, they want to read the story the background itself is neat and it provides a new theater for them to witness the story, but it isn't what they're there for. You know, they're not reading chapter one going, man, I wish that this guy would describe the road from point A to point B with more detail. No, they want to know what happened at point A to make him get to point B. And then they want to know what happens at point B. And then they want to understand what happens at point C. The scenery in between needs to be there, but it doesn't have to be uh, Tolkien style, like, you know, traveling from the Shire to Rivendell. Uh, we don't need to know what every single leaf looks like. We just need to know that there are leaves and that some of them are falling and that it looks pretty. And for the most part, we just needed to, we really only needed to know that they got from point A to point B with very little trouble. And then at point B, the Nazgul showed up and, and caused havoc. I mean, that's really the parts that are important. And that's how the movie succeeded where the novel struggles for me and for a lot of modern audiences is that we can get that entire five page description of the forest out of the way in about a 30 second shot and move on to the action. Now, I know that a lot of writers are probably ready to burn me alive when I start talking like that. But I've looked at a lot of books and the ones that move the most the ones that have a lot of motion and cinematic writing help readers get through it much quicker. And these days, it's a lot harder 
for readers to get bogged down in description. They do start to skim. I've I've talked to a lot of folks and done a lot of research, and people will start skimming your longer descriptions. So it's important to remember that you might have spent a lot of time on that setting, but the reader doesn't really care how much time you spent. In fact, the longer you spent, the more compelled you are going to be to include all of that work in your in your story. When in reality, you might create a 200-page genre guide and use about 5% of it in your actual book. Here's a great example. Crescendo is my young adult book that I just finished. And it's set in the far future. Um, basically, a, a war of values happened, and the world has been separated up into communities, and information is controlled and that sort of thing. So... I built the history leading up to that, and I have detailed entries about each of the communities and what they're like. And in the book, I brush on them at most. Not even every community is mentioned, but I still wrote about them so that as I go through this series and I write a sequel, I can actually go back and say, you know, this place has always existed. I came up with it at the very beginning, and it will feel organic because just through implication that there are other communities and even just casual mentions of what they might be like allows me to bring them in later. But one of the things I was very careful not to do with Crescendo was labor the reader with too much information about the world. I did have a character available who could ask questions that I felt like the reader would ask. Things like, why do you guys not do X? And then the character could be like, oh yeah, you're you know new to all this. And then they could answer the question. And that way I'm conveying just enough information to keep you going in that world. But I only gave the bare minimum of what was needed and told that story as well as the setting as I went along. And it's very important to include it in the action so that it doesn't bog down. So that's how I approach setting. Um, I'm going to be really diving into that in a major way with my Udemy course. It's not done yet, but... If you love hearing this kind of stuff and you really want to dive into the more detailed-oriented aspect of creating a novel overall, look forward to that in the near future. I'm still working on it, but it's going to include setting, character, story, long-term plots, franchises, all that stuff. And I'm going to use Society Case Files as sort of the example. I'm going to show how I built Society Case Files from nothing to the multiple novels, comics, and everything else that it is today. So that's coming in the near future. But let's move on to something else right now. I wanted to talk about some entertainment that I'm looking forward to here in the very near future. Uh, One of those things is Carnival Row coming to the Amazon Prime. And I don't know what you may or may not have seen about it, but I have refused to dive too deeply into the... uh, to the hype. I haven't gone and read about it. I've seen the trailer. I know that Orlando Bloom is in it, and I know Cara Delevingne plays some fairy. And if you're at all familiar with my work, which you probably are if you're listening to this, then you know that I've got a thing for fairies, especially since Fee is so out of control, and she's pretty much the uh, representative of everything I've done. Um, So I'm really, really pumped up about it. And what I think I'm most excited about is that I know nothing about it other than where it's set and the uh, two lead actors. So I'm really looking forward to that in the very near future. And I'm very curious how many other people are as interested in that story. I think it comes out, uh, yeah, it comes out at the end of the month on the 30th. And so 
since it's coming to Amazon, I think we'll be able to binge it pretty much right off the bat if we're so inclined. Uh, we did that with Good Omens. And, you know, if this turns out to be awesome, I would foresee me doing that again. Although I have to admit, if it turns out to be kind of crap or not exciting, I guess I'd give up. I don't know. I really do like those two actors quite a bit. So I guess we'll see. But uh, anyway, Carnival Row coming out very soon. Pretty pumped about that. Uh, another thing I'm really looking forward to is It Chapter 2. I'm really happy that they broke that book up into two different uh, movies. That's coming next month, and it actually looks scarier to me than the first one did. Um, I have to admit that the first movie didn't even really give me nightmares, which usually horror movies do, even when I don't think they're scary. Um, but this one actually looks pretty pretty freaky, so um, that'll be a very interesting an interesting story to to watch together when we can see them both at the same time uh, after the second one comes out. I know that a few theaters had It, Chapter 1, available to see uh, this month, but that doesn't really have the same impact to me as being able to see them back-to-back. Maybe one theater will have the, uh, you know, double feature or something, which that could be actually pretty cool to do as well. But, um, yes, I'm really looking forward to It, Chapter 2. A little forward in the future there. In October, a couple of great video games seem to be coming out. Uh, The new Ghost Recon, I'm pretty excited about that, especially since Uplay Plus is going to be available. So we don't have to spend $60 to try it. We can spend uh, $15 and give it a shot. So that should be a lot of fun. I played Wildlands pretty crazy uh, when it first came out. In fact, I took the day off from work because I was still working at True Blue at the time. And I have to admit, I put in a good 16 straight hours into that game. It was it was really entertaining. Remember, I played the beta. I was really concerned that uh, the mobs would be uh, bullet sponges like the Division. And uh, the very first guy that I was able to take down without having to shoot him more than two times, I was pretty much sold and pre-ordered the game. So this one looks really neat. Something that I have noticed that we might have to actually go back and play something and Ghost Recon Wildlands because I believe that a character in a recent update shows up and is in the second game so to understand that part of the story it might be good to go back and try that out but we've got all of September to do that so uh, it shouldn't be a big deal to make that happen Um, the next game of course is the Destiny 2 Shadow Keep that has been pushed back to October 1st and I have to admit that I am super nervous about Shadowkeep in general. There's so many changes coming to Destiny, and I'm just, I'm not sure I'm ready for them, especially considering that we've got things like uh, Armor 2.0, which adds some more grindy elements. We've got uh, the Eververse changes, because now that they're an independent studio, they got to make some cash somehow, and uh, it sounds like they're going to be trying to make their money that way. Now... On that note, I read an interesting article that suggested that the um, ornament for Whisper of the Worm, just the sales from that on Eververse, paid for the development time for one of the major quests, the Outbreak Zero questline. Um, so that's actually pretty neat. That does show that they are able to make enough money to keep the product going. So that's that's interesting stuff. But there's just so much changing about Destiny 2. Uh the cross save is available and I just, you know, I don't know. I don't know what to say. Um, 
Obviously, we're going to see in October how different it is, this whole free-to-play model. We're going to see if it sinks or if it swims. Um, we're going to see a huge influx of players. It's going to be pretty crazy. So um, I will definitely be there for the ride, but uh, I have to admit um, I am really scared for my my primary hobby, the company in general, and everybody who will be impacted by it. But uh, maybe it'll be a great uh, maybe it'll be a great thing. Uh, Solstice of Heroes shook my faith in them considerably, considering how it uh, is pretty much a spreadsheet. But other than that, I mean, it's still Destiny 2. I still love it. It just has a great feel to it. So we'll see. Anyway, that's some of the entertainment that I'm really looking forward to. I'd love to know what you guys are looking forward to as well. And if you comment on the podcast, I'd be happy to even address some of it or offer up my advice or thoughts or opinions on all of that stuff too. But anyway, thank you very much for listening to the show. I appreciate you stopping by. And if you liked what you heard and you want to hear more, be sure to check out the website and keep track of the schedule. You can find us at www.societycasefiles.com or www.roberthazelton.com. Don't forget to follow or support the project at ko-fi.com slash societycasefiles. Thanks very much for stopping by. Really appreciate it. And I look forward to talking to you soon. Bye now.